0: Hello and welcome to Central's podcast. We pray your heart is touched through listening and that it helps you in your walk with Jesus. This message is from one of our pastors here at Central. Good morning. Pastor Kurt uh, is giving me the opportunity to bring the word today. It's a, uh, it's a different view to sit down there and watch our worship team. Uh, you know, I, I am so appreciative of our worship team here at Central, and it's great—it's great to lead a ministry. Amen. Yeah, you can honor them, but it's—it's it's great to lead a ministry that I can sit down here and enjoy the ministry as well, and they—they uh, they do a fantastic job. So I am so thankful for them. Uh, all right. So this morning, if you've been on our Facebook or email, you see that we're going to talk about bread today. Everybody loves bread, right? Um but before we get going, just to make sure we're all awake, I thought I'd just start us off with a little slice of humor. Okay? Oh, don't worry, they're gonna get way worse. Um so what did one slice of bread say to the other slice of bread at the start of the of the race? Your toast. Uh what did the loaf why did the loaf break up with his girlfriend? Their relationship was crumbling. How do you spot a really radical baker? You just look for the one that's going against the grains. <laughs> what is the most sophisticated part of the bread? The upper crust. Come on, Shabbat, stay with me. Um, Listen, these are good jokes. Everybody loves a little bun. Um, Just like butter, I'm on a roll. Okay. All right, now you might think, you may think that I started baking because I really enjoy it, but do you really want to know the reason I started? I needed the dough. Come on, you got to laugh. It's the yeast you could do. (laughs) Honestly, you know what the worst part about bread jokes are? They get a little stale. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All right. That's all. I had other jokes, but they all went awry. Um. (laughs) Oh, it's amazing. He lets me up here. Um. All right. So feel free to take out your phone. If you're online, you can get a piece of paper. If you're here and you like old-fashioned paper, in the uh, the seat back in front of you, there are uh, little notepads. You can make notes you can write questions, you can say, did he really say that? Uh, And if you don't enjoy it, you have something to doodle on. Um, So I don't know about you, but I have loved this sermon series that Pastor Kurt is teaching us through. Uh, Not to try and and boast uh, on him, but it is so wonderful to be in a church uh, with a teacher leading us and that teaches us the word so well. So I do appreciate him. Um, For me, as an analogy person, I love analogies. The, my favorite thing about this series is the mirror that's being held up to the Old Testament and that's showing us uh, the true picture to come in the New Testament and the new covenant with us. Uh, I was at a pastor's conference, uh, all our staff was, this is years ago now, and Pastor Jim Cimbala, uh, who is the lead pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle uh, in New York. A great church, a lot of very hands-on ministry. He talks about them really having to minister to people in a really tough life situation. And he was kind of admonishing the pastors and said, go ahead and preach your Old Testament sermons. I'll handle ministering to prostitutes and drug addicts. And it was like all the pastors in the room, you just heard the air get sucked out. Uh, But he said, go ahead and preach them. Whatever you do, get to Jesus quickly. And that's what I have loved about this series, is Pastor Kurt's ability, and hopefully today we're gonna see we're going to look at the Old Testament, but it is to point us toward Jesus. That's the purpose of it. So we're going to try and get to Jesus quickly today. It is amazing to see God's attention to detail, isn't it? You know, the plan, the plan that he had to redeem mankind started long before Jesus was physically present on the earth. Uh, What we're trying to do uh, when we are looking through this series, Pastor Kurt's heart, my heart, is to ignite a passion of worship in us the way that God has intended all along. Now, when I say this, it's not just talking about our vocal, you know, I'm the worship leader. Like, yeah, hey, he's telling us we've got to sing louder. Not really. It's, it's the position of our heart the worship, word worship and the connotation of what we're going to talk about today is much wider than just a vocal singing of praise and worship to him. From the very beginning, God's intention was to be with his people. God wants to be in the very midst of his people. <clears throat> God not only came to earth, but he came to dwell in the very center of, Of his people. You know, if we looked at the picture uh, a couple weeks ago when when we had that image that was the overview, you saw the tribes all centered around the tabernacle, God's dwelling place. When they moved uh, and they had to pick up the pieces of the tabernacle, they were centered within the Israelites. God still chooses to be in the center of us. So we looked at that at the very beginning of the Bible. We're going to fast forward to the end of the Bible and look at Revelation. In the book of Revelations, he is seen at the center of the golden menorah. Those golden menorah represent his people, his congregation, all of us around him. He is in the middle of people today still. He is dwelling right here with us right now. That should cause a little bit of awe to us that he chooses to be with us. The tabernacle, the tent, was not a permanent building. He came down to our level. God wanted to walk with his people through their wilderness. He became a pilgrim when they were pilgrims. He will come to our level and dwell with us in our situations, in our wilderness. I know I can raise my hand. I don't know if anybody else can. Has life ever felt like a wilderness? Had there ever been a season? Go ahead. I I like participation when when I... up here. It lets me know that you're listening. It lets me know that we're here, okay? So the tabernacle reminds us that God wants to be with us through everything, through everything. He could have said, you're disobedient people. You didn't listen to me, and you have a consequence of being away from me for 40 years, and when you get good enough and get to the promised land, I'll meet you there. He didn't. He said, even though you were disobedient, I'm going to be with you, Okay, Jesus came to draw us near to God, but too often we believers can revert to the old system where priest and people were separated, okay? So there are times where we prefer others seek God for us. There are others that we want to hear God for us and then just tell us what they heard. We read books of how other people sought after God We listen to popular preachers and tell us what they've learned of God and what they've learned of his word. We listen to private worship songs that other worship leaders around the world are writing to God, and we listen to them offer that up, never singing them for ourselves. Too easily we find ourselves in the position of the Jewish people at the base of Mount Sinai while while God is up at the top meeting with Moses, and they say, no, 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 we can't go there You go, Moses, talk to God, come back and tell us. If we go ourselves, we'll die. Our spiritual lives cannot become based on secondhand knowledge and secondhand experience. Secondhand food cannot satisfy a true hunger for God. We are meant to have an intimate relationship with him. You know, we are blessed to be in a church where week after week, Pastor Kurt will put a fabulous spread on the table in front of us. There's great worship, there's great ministry, there are things going on, but we can't, ourselves, right here in our local body, we're not talking about everybody else outside the wall, talking to the church family that I'm in right now. We can have a tendency, and it it should be a caution to us not to become secondhand Christians. So we need to stretch. The things that we're talking about today, we're going to stretch into the rest of our week. You know, last week, Pastor Kurt talked about us as priests being ministers to the Lord. Some of you are new to the faith. Some of you may be new to a church even talking about that. And so it seems kind of lofty. And we think of that phrase, ministering to the Lord, as, you know, a couple of moments ago in worship when we're standing here and singing before him. Yeah, that is an aspect of it. But as the priest that you are, because in the New Covenant, Newsflash, we are the priests, okay? We are not the people. We are the priests in this covenant. Uh, because of that, we have to have a lifestyle of worship. So we're going to talk about some things today that will be ministering to the Lord, okay? And how we can do that outside of singing. All right, that was a little detour. I had Dana make us a graphic that was in the theme of the, of the thing because... Uh, It's how my brain works. I have little detours, and I I try and fight it usually, but I've decided today I'm going to just give you a few little detours that as I share them, this is what I hope, that it spurs you on to think about something else outside of this room. We're not going to dig into the depth of this road. We're not going to go all the way down. I'm just going to give you enough of the surface, and hopefully it spurs you to think, huh, I never thought about that. And then you start to explore, read in Scripture, search it, search it out for yourselves, okay? All right, okay, here we go. So we're studying the tent series right now. What this method of studying is called typology, okay? So this is a method of biblical interpretation where an element found in the Old Testament is seen to prefigure or to foretell one found in the New Testament. Okay, it says in Hebrews 10 that the law is just a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the thing. We're taking time to do what it says laid out in 1 Corinthians 15, 46. We are first looking at the natural, okay? We're looking at the natural thing, these elements, these uh, stations, these furniture pieces, look at them for their intended purpose in the Old Testament, and then we're going to see the pattern that they form spiritually for us. All right, today we're diving into the table of showbread, which you'll see whenever it's written there, looks like shoebread. Okay? Uh, depending on the translation that you have, it might have the E, it might have the O. There are other translations that have a different word altogether. We'll talk about some of them today um, But it's all the same thing, okay? So E or O, don't worry about that. We're talking about the same thing, showbread. Before we get into the specifics, I wanted to do an overview of special events that led up to this point, just in case you aren't familiar with Moses and the Israelites and how we got here, okay? We ready for a speed history? Yes, okay. All right, here we go. Israelites are enslaved in Egypt, okay? They get to a really big number, they start to, fear, to scare Pharaoh, so he says, you're gonna be slaves. God tells grown-up Moses to go back to Egypt, and to, we won't get into his whole story, that's a long story, I don't have time to do it right now. So God tells grown-up Moses, go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh that I said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. God says, plague. No plague, no plague, no plague, no plague. Really bad plague, Okay? Really bad bad plague happens. Pharaoh tells Moses and the Israelites, get out, we want you gone so much, we're gonna give you all our stuff. And so they give all the stuff. So the Israelites leave with bank. They go, and they go through the wilderness. Pharaoh says, psych, he chases after them. The Israelites are trapped between death and death. God parts the seas. The Israelites are dry. The Egyptians are drowned, okay? Then through a series of unfortunate events, They have to wander around the desert for 40 years. But God says, don't worry, I'm going to be with you. So he takes Moses, says, here's all, this is how I want you to build the tabernacle. Go down and build it. Moses starts building the tabernacle. And here we are at the tent series, okay? So that's your little short history to get you up to where we are. (laughs) Okay? So, if you have missed any of the previous series, the last three weeks, I'm encouraging you to go watch them online. We have the online tool. It's a great way to hear what Pastor Kurt has already established leading up to this point. I will slow down, but we're going to just recap these uh, other three elements. So we learned about the outer court. So That is the, the whole entirety of the tabernacle, the outer court, where we have the altar, the basin, the priest, and the people who are allowed to be out there. Okay? Then we head to the gate, up in the top right. The gate was the only way into the outer court. What did that represent for us? What was the foreshadowing? What is our gate? Jesus, gold star, okay? So I'm gonna hand out a couple today if you're good. So we go through the gate, it's Jesus. Then we get the first thing when we come in the gate is the brazen altar, Down here in the bottom corner with the lamb on it. This is where the sacrificial offerings were given to God. The shedding of blood and atoning for the people's sin. This picture is a shadow of the crucifixion. It's a shadow of the shedding of blood of Jesus for all of us. Then we go to the basin. The basin where the priests were washed clean of the blood and the dirt on their hands and their feet. We see this as allowing the word, big W, representing Jesus, and the word, little w, representing the Bible, to cleanse us. Not forgiving our sins necessarily in this context. We're talking about the ongoing sanctification and the keeping of us clean and preparing us to do God's work. Now we are going to approach the holy place. There's a natural progression here that God crafted. I saw an image um, while I was doing research that uh, I don't know if it was their intended purpose, but I saw it on the image that straight through the gate was a a band of blood red that went through the altar, through the basin, into the holy place and into the holy of holies. And I just thought how amazing of a picture, that linear uh, design that God made, that there are steps and that they lead right into the holy of holies. They lead to the very face of God. So our pattern is this, we've been converted through the burnt offerings. Then we are cleansed by the basin, and now we head into the holy place for communion, okay? Now, in the time of Moses, regular Jewish people could not enter the holy place, that that inner tent, okay? Only the priest could go through the veil, The veil that separated that from the outer court was a white linen veil with blue and purple and scarlet material woven through it. There were no cherubim uh, embroidered on this veil like there are in the veil that lead to the most holy place, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks. The veils to the holy place and the most holy place were about twice as high as that outer court, okay? So I would say signifying a greater spiritual experience, that we were heading to a new level the closer we get to the presence of God. There's more there, okay? Let's take a look inside the holy place. This is such a cool illustration. Um, So imagine, as a priest, we've just gone under the veil and we've walked into this room, uh, something that you have never seen before. The holy place was an interior tent about 30 feet long, 15 feet wide and 15 feet high all of the walls were made of wood that were overlaid floor to ceiling with gold, okay? Uh, now, I mean, could you imagine like this, the way light would dance around in this room? Like completely consumed in, in gold all around you. Um, okay, so let's just take a little look back. When we were outside the court, the bronze, the altar, the brazen altar and the basin were made of what material? Bronze, gold star for some of you, okay? So, bronze material out there. We've entered into the holy place. Everything has transitioned to gold, representing the purity of God, okay? Um, we're gonna take another detour and just talk about the covering over that tent. Uh, so, this interior tent, we already talked about the walls, but on top of it, it wasn't a roof, it was fabric that was draped across and then down all the way to the ground on the outside. So it completely covered the tabernacle, the the interior holy place. So the first covering, if you were inside and looked up as a priest, you would see a white linen cloth that was embroidered with cherubims on it, okay? On top of that was a covering of goat hair. Then on top of that was ram skin that was dyed red. And then on the very top was a covering made out of animal hide, Now, there is great debate, depending on the translation that you have, uh, of what animal hide that is. And rather than fuss over that detail, what I want us to focus on is that the holy place from the outside did not look special. You know, I mean, you think about like a sea of tents. We're talking millions of people. Like sometimes that's hard for us to remember. Millions of people in tents gathered around a larger tent in the middle that's covered with animal hide, all the way, front and back, all the way down to the ground. It just makes me think of, uh, it's the chance to overlook a rough exterior to see the treasure that dwells within, okay? So it's God's wisdom, we see it all through Scripture, to hide treasures of his kingdom in common, humble vessels, All through Scripture we see it, and that includes our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you think the holy place was beautiful inside, sparkling, 15-foot-high walls of gold, but the typology pushes us to also look at Jesus, who Scripture says had nothing about him, no attraction, nothing about him that would draw us to him. You know what I mean? He wasn't this like big, long-haired, bearded stud walking around that people would notice him because of his outside appearance. Yet inside of him dwelt all the mysteries in glory and wonder of God. All right, we're back from the detour, okay? So back to this holy place slide. Uh, we see over here on this side, we have this big golden lampstand, the menorah, okay? Pastor Kurt's gonna be talking about that. And then the thing in the, in the center is the incense altar, uh, with the priest there putting incense. So we'll be talking about those two things in the upcoming week. Obviously, you have the, this artist's interpretation of the veil that would lead to the holy of holies, okay? And then all the way on the side, we see this long table with stacks of something and these little bowls on top, and that is the table of showbread, Okay? Let's go to the text in Exodus to read just about the specifications that God lays out to Moses about this table. So Exodus 25, 23 through 30. If you're old school in your Bible, if you want to write it down, but it will be on the screen if you just want to follow along. This is God talking to Moses. He says, make a table out of acacia wood. Make it three feet long, one foot six inches wide, and two feet three inches high. If you're in a different translation, it probably says cubit. Remember, that's this measurement here. Cover it with pure gold, put a strip of gold around it, also make a rim about 3 inches wide, put a strip of gold around the rim. Make four gold rings for the table, join them to the four corners where the four legs are. The rings must be close to the rim. They will Sorry, they must hold the poles that will be used to carry the table. Make the poles out of acacia wood, cover them with gold, use them to carry the table. Make it make its plates and dishes out of pure gold. Also make its pitchers and bowls out of pure gold. Use the pitchers and bowls to pour out drink offerings. Put the holy bread on the table. It must be near my holy throne on the Ark of the Covenant law at all times. Okay, so we've talked about the specifics of the table. It's good to have that context, but now we're gonna talk about the holy bread because the table is just the vessel while it needs to be holy and sanctified, but the main part of this is what is on the table, okay? So we're going to talk about the bread that's mentioned there. There are 12 loaves, two rows of six each. And there's a little bowl of frankincense, okay, which if you're not familiar with, it would be, it's a, it's a resin of a, of a tree. So think of like a, a whitish amber little, looks like a, a little pebble almost. Okay, so there's a little bowl of those sitting on top. Here's a very little detour. You can just write down Leviticus 24, or if you don't know how to spell it, L-E-V period 24, okay? The frankincense that's mentioned there in the top is a memorial portion of the bread. So we're gonna talk about it in a little bit. The bread was actually consumed by the priests, but that the frankincense was taken off of that bread and taken over to the altar of incense and offered there up to the Lord, okay? So it's just a little sidetrack. You can read about that. Um, in that scripture, now there is some discrepancy on the loaves. Okay, some people say it's leavened; other people say it's unleavened. Some people say it's a flatbread, round bread, thick, thin. The sides baked in a pan that would curve them inward. Pan that would curve it up. All that other stuff. I'm not going to hone in on those things because they are not spelled out for us in scripture. They are tradition. And I'm not saying there's not truth to that tradition, but we have all played the telephone game, right? Where we say a sentence and then years and years and years down the line, we have some version of it. So I'm not gonna harp in on that. What we're going to key in on is that there's bread and there are 12 loaves of it, okay? Uh, Depending on your translation, we talked about a little bit that this bread could be named all different things. Because remember, we have the tabernacle we're talking about right now, but this also gets translated into the temple in a a few more books of the Bible. And the temple had several rounds of rebuilding. So you may hear showbread, you may hear other things talking about this table um, or a variant of it, but we're all talking about the same stuff. But the original Hebrew word for this bread is lachem hapanim, okay? Which most closely translates to the bread of the face, a.k.a. face bread. Okay? Now, this was not because of the shape. This is not because they cut out a little silhouette. It wasn't a mischievous priest that pushed his face into the dough before it was baked. You know, I I did think, I don't know why that thought popped into my head, but literally that popped into my head as I was writing. It's a strange place he made up here. Um, Now, in 2 Chronicles, this bread is mentioned and they call it the continual bread. Because it's, it's spoken in that scripture that we read, that at all times. So you'll hear that aspect of the bread, that it was always meant to be there. Uh, so every Sabbath, every Shabbat, once a week, the priest would come into there, into the holy place, and they would swap out new bread for the bread that was there, so that there was always bread at that table. This marked their constant devotion to the ministry with God. Okay, this is a continual thing. Uh, there was never a moment that this bread was not on the table. It was, uh, there are some traditions out there that, that they talk about that this bread remained fresh, whatever that means, uh, to the priest. So I would say all we, can, all we know is it's not going to be a, a, a stale, nasty thing for the priest to have to eat. It's actually something that they enjoy to partake. God actually instructs it as something I want you to do. I want you to partake of this bread, okay? Um, In Leviticus 24, this bread is put out every Sabbath, and it says in that scripture that it is representing the everlasting covenant that God has with the Israelites. God puts a lot of weight on this bread, on the bread of his face, the bread of his presence. In Leviticus 21, it's it's like God highlights it. Um, because he calls this bread, this act, a most holy offering. That's a verbatim. This is a most holy offering. So there is something super important about this bread. In Numbers 4, uh, the Israelites, you know, they've moved around. They were nomadic people. God moved them through in those 40 years. When they traveled, God put so much importance on the bread that the bread had to remain on the table even when they moved. Like, talk about nerve-wracking for the people who had to carry that thing, okay? So there are instructions in number four of how the table was covered, how it was wrapped up, and then to be uh, moved. Okay, here's an, another fun little detour for you. Uh, if you have studied anything in the Old Testament, if you have read the books Samuel, First and Second Samuel, uh, if you have not read it, and you like dramatic stories, or if you like soap operas, Please, go read 1 and 2 Samuel. It will fascinate you. Totally wild story. But in 1 Samuel, David is on the run. This is David who becomes King David, okay? David is on the run, and he is starving, and he has a couple men with him, his little small group of people. He's starving, and he shows up at the tabernacle and asks the priest, can you give me food? And the priest says, we don't have any food here. The only thing we have is this old bread it was this bread that we're talking about. So they had swapped out the old bread for the new bread. They had this old bread, and that's just when David shows up. And the priest kind of grills him and asks some questions about his purity, his integrity, and the integrity of his men and all that. And after feels sufficient, the priest makes an audible and decides, I'm gonna give you some of this bread. And so that's the only time in Scripture that we see anybody outside of a priest consuming this bread uh, in the Old Testament, Okay. Um, so what is the importance of bread? Why bread? So in biblical times, and for many, many years to come, and even to this day in some parts of the world, bread is a main food group. It's a main way of sustaining life. Bread has kept people alive in times when there was no other food. Food. Bread in some form shows up in almost every culture ever documented, which I find, from an analogy standpoint, very fascinating because that means that this image works in every culture. Right? Isn't it amazing? Even for people that have, that have um, no access to uh, wheat, they have their own form of bread, whether it's from corn, whether it's from rice, whether all, all of those things. It's fascinating that bread is the chosen analogy. Um, to the Israelites, bread was an acknowledgement of a gift from God. Bread is wonderful, isn't it? Mmm, carbs. Um, I see in the prophetic sandwich shops and bakeries being raided today. Um, okay. So, I mean, all this talk about bread, if you know anything about me, I love to cook. It's a major passion of mine. And I have f- very fond memories of, of cooking and baking as a kid with family. And as soon as we start talking about bread, like my brain instantly goes to that smell. And there are not too many things in this world that I find more pleasing than fresh bread being made. Even the yeast, thing, even just the dough, the rising proofing of the dough and then the baking of it. Uh, there's just something about bread. It is therapeutic. Body, mind, and spirit. There is something when you, if you have not done it before, I really am encouraging you. It sounds weird. I'm encouraging you just to do this. Get some dough or get a, a cookbook out and pick an easy dough and just knead the, knead the dough and feel what it's like. It, it, there is a spiritual connotation to it. And this is one of these moments where we have to be seen as a priest at all times. And so we have to choose, just like Pastor David was saying, we're making a choice. I can just make bread at my counter, or I can choose that moment to think about God. You know, there's all sorts of things. You can think about him molding us. You can think about uh, the work that's being put into this. You can think about all sorts of things. Just even what we're talking about today uh, can be used. You know, somehow through uh, all the transitions here at Central, I've been on staff 12 years now, uh, but I ended up with Pastor Ralph Volpe's Bible Concordance, um, his exhaustive Strong's Concordance. Uh, If you don't know who he is, Pastor Volpe was our lead pastor here for decades. Wonderful man of God, wonderful teacher. And this Strong's Concordance is literally that big. And I decided to go old school and not Google something, I went right into this, found bread, and I counted every line that bread is mentioned. It's over 350 times that bread is shown up in in Scripture. And if you have spent any time studying the Word, anything that is spoken about that many times is important. There is something to be noted about the bread. Um, Now, in those 350, over 350 times, we see bread being used for all sorts of things. Uh, some of it is a physical, natural talking of bread, like we're talking about right now, very specifically about a loaf. But we also see that bread signifying or symbolizing something else. Okay, so we can see bread symbolize the sufficiency of Christ. John 6.35 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never, grow, never go hungry. We see bread symbolize the word of God. Matthew 4.4, 4, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, because I like to cook and because I like to entertain and throw parties, this one is particularly uh, of note to me is that we see bread as a unification tool, okay? So eating bread is a sign of fellowship and friendship, In those days, breaking bread with somebody meant you were forming a bond with them. Why do you think people were in such a tizzy when Jesus broke bread with people that they didn't like their reputation? Because it meant that he was being a friend with them, that he was choosing to make that intimate moment. We know something happens. We can look at it right now. We're gonna look at it in two ways. So in the physical, friendship Formed over a meal is different than just a, a conversation. So you talk to people here at church, I encourage you. We want you guys to be family and friends outside of these walls. After church one day, take somebody who you barely know out to lunch. Something happens in that relationship. A bond changes. And we see that also in the spiritual realm. When you have prayed with somebody, when you have experienced something of the Lord with somebody else, all of a sudden that relationship is different. And it's because you have partaken, you have broke bread, the holy bread, the bread of Jesus with another believer. God flowing to and through each member of the spiritual body, he is the bread we are sharing. Okay? God... talked about, speaks to the Messiah as the bread of life. We need to constantly feed on the bread of life, to have fellowship with him, to be intimate with him as we, as we would a friend. You might not even know this. If you're newer to, to God, you might not even know that he calls you his friend. Is that the kind of relationship you have with God? Would you consider, would you call him a friend? It's a challenge to all of us. Do you know him enough to call him a friend? Does he know you enough to call him a friend? You know, it causes me uh, to do an evaluation. You know, this thought of breaking bread with God Almighty. Like, God Almighty, creator of the universe, wants to break break bread with you. With you. With me. Individuals. So, it makes me have some questions of evaluation. So, what's the status of my bread? Is it stale? Is it moldy? Is it fresh, warm? Have I replenished it on the regular? Do I consume it? Do I ingest it? Do I allow it to nourish me? Do I remind myself of the need of his bread? Do I remind myself that life is sustained with his bread? Do I partake of his presence? Do I look upon his face? These are important questions to ask ourselves. We need to keep tabs on whether we're actually doing these things or not. You know, Pastor Kurt talked about it last week. It's a great scripture that talks about, you know, when we hear the Word of God and then we aren't changed by it, it's like looking into a mirror, seeing yourself, and walking away and a few seconds later forgetting what you look like. So we have a chance right now. I said it in the first service. Like, for all of us, God is showing us something through this series, obviously, Uh, you know, through all our messages. But in this series right now, he's bringing us back to something. He's telling you, you guys have forgotten a plan that I've laid out. My people have forgotten a plan. I laid this out of how you get face-to-face with me and you have forgotten it. And so we have a choice this morning and as we listen to this series of actually doing something with this, actually allowing change to happen in our life or we can just listen to it Say, amen, yes, amen. And then we walk out, and a few minutes later, we have forgotten what we've been looking at. So this morning, I'm just encouraging you, as things, as the Holy Spirit brings something up in your heart, as he reveals something, he might cause something, as he did with me even in preparation of this, to check a check in my heart, note, note that down. And then spend some time with him and press into that a little bit. That's how we are priests, That's how we are ministering to the Lord. So we've examined why bread, but let's look at the aspect of why 12 loaves, okay? So there are many theories out there as to what these 12 could mean. Uh, Again, we could summarize, we could come up with neat, fun anecdotes from tradition. But if we look at the context to the book of Exodus, he's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel, Okay? So this is assuredly not to cause anybody who is not of Israel to feel excluded from God's plan. It says in Scripture that God is not a respecter of persons. Okay? When he chose Abraham to form the Israelites, he did not choose Abraham because of a certain DNA. He chose Abraham because of a position he saw in Abraham's heart. Okay? That's why it falls on Jew and Gentile. It's not about where your blood lineage comes from. It comes from the position of your heart. And since we are in the new covenant, we have a benefit that the average Israelite did not have. As we've mentioned throughout this series, who are the priests in the new covenant? We are, us. We aren't aren't the people. We aren't the Israelites. We are the priests. Okay? Okay? If we look at Scripture, Exodus 19, 6 says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Revelation 1, 6. He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love what Hebrews 8, 6 says. But now, Jesus, our high priest. So right here, we're in typology. In the middle of Hebrews, we're studying typology because what, what it's showing is we are the priests, there was priests and then there was a high priest, okay? So we are the priests, Jesus is our high priest. Uh, so, but now, Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. It's amazing. It means that the relationship that they had so if we look at this very physically they once a year the the high priest got to enter the holy of holies the very presence of god we have a better situation in the new covenant because of jesus christ being that mediator now the veil has been torn the presence of god is out amongst us we get to partake in it it's it is so amazing Uh, you know, I'm not trying to steal Pastor Kurt's thunder, but in a couple weeks, he's gonna talk about that veil being torn. And you know, I always uh, thought about it as the veil being torn, and now we can have access to God. But what separated us from God was our sin. And that was paid for through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And God like kind of flipped a thought on me while I was reading this text Of going, it wasn't about you coming in, it was about me bursting out. And suddenly, these 12 loaves that were in a veiled presence of God, those 12 loaves represent his people, they represent us. Now, all of a sudden, that veil's torn in. I mean, it's not about you come to me, it's not God sitting up saying, You come to me. When you're good enough, you come to me and you'll experience my presence that veil torn, and out he, out he is amongst us. Amazing, amazing. You know, the thought that he wants to commune with us should cause awe. You know, I, I, I'm not just trying to be feelings-based, but just reading these words, just reading the Scripture, it does, it makes me go, oh my goodness. God, you want to be with me that much? It should cause our hearts and our hands and our mouths when we sing to rise up in worship. You know, I wrote on here to, for God to forgive me and, and I hope it's your prayer too that God, please forgive me when we hear this kind of thing and we read these scriptures and we don't do anything in response. Like, you know, that makes me think of, the, you know, we talk, people have said the Bible's like a love letter. From God to us. And if we look at it in the natural, how devastating, Ooh. how devastating would it be to write your love letter of undying love for somebody and to send it to them and they look at it and say, Oh, that's nice. Ooh, come on. He called us his priests. He laid it all out for us, and then we look at it and go, that's nice. I'm convinced that if me, starting at me, because I can't make any statement to you guys that I'm not willing to go myself. Starting at me, and every person in our church body, online, in person, wherever you are, if we got the concept that we are priests and we started to live like it and we started to obey the Lord like it, we would see a change like we have never witnessed before in our own lives and in this church body. An incredible, incredible thing. All right, I'm gonna do one more detour, okay? Can we do one more? So this is a little fun fact of Bible trivia, but it points to God knowing what he's doing. Have you ever been in a place where you don't you, your, your mind is going, I don't know that you know what you're doing? I don't know. I, it doesn't feel like it right now. This right here, God like put his thumb on it when I saw this and go, if you didn't think I knew what I was doing, look at the detail of what I execute things. So right here, fun fact, Jesus is the bread of life, right? What town was Jesus born in? If you can't remember, let's sing the song. Oh, little town of okay, Bethlehem. Now, if you were a uh, Somebody who read in Hebrew, you wouldn't read that word as Bethlehem, you would read that word as Bethlehem, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Bethlehem. We already talked about one of those words today, Lachem HaPanim. Bethlehem means house of bread. How detailed is our God? that he would know the bread of life must be born in the town called Bethlehem because he is the bread of life and he is coming from the house of bread. Woo-wee. You know, one other thing um, that this bread also represents is God's favor. Okay? So in the concept of bread, there is an inherent acknowledgement of God's faithful provision and favor. Psalm 37, 25, I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. Let's look back at at the first, first physical representation. Let's think about manna. What did manna mean to those people out in the desert wandering around? It was their life source. How about when Jesus multiplied the bread and fed the multitudes. You know, enough with to-go-home containers for everybody, at least for the 12 disciples. I want to know, how long did that bread last? That's my question. You know, that's one of those weird things I'll have to ask God when I'm there. Like, did that just keep going? Did it eventually reach the bottom? I don't know. Um, Think about the daily bread he gives us. Okay, so now we flipped. We're at typology. God gave them manna. God gave the multitude bread. And now he says, I am your daily bread. I am your daily sustenance. You know, if we look at the concept of bread, God presents us with seeds to plant. I'm talking about physical bread, seeds in our hand. Scatter them on the dirt. He produces sun and water to grow them up. He protects the stock and allows them to flourish. <clears throat> he gives us the physical strength, excuse me, the physical strength in our body to go harvest the wheat and then to thresh the wheat and to get the grain out. Then he gives us the knowledge on how to grind wheat and how to make bread. This is a pattern that we see that we can choose to honor the Lord. This is an example of how we minister to the Lord outside of singing worship. So it's an acknowledgement that it's all his. It's all from him. Every step in the process. You could just plant, like, you know, for those of you, I love to garden. Gardening is one of my passions in the summer. You can't, or it would. I won't say can't, it's very hard for me at least to be a gardener and not see the hand of God. Little tiny seed, it says in Scripture that that seed must die first. Must be nothing. It must be pushed down into the ground in the dark, Allowed to be there, then it grows, and it grows into a shoot, and it grows a plant. And it's amazing, you know, you think about an apple tree. That apple tree started from one seed, pushed into the ground, grew a big tree. Now there's fruit all over the tree, and in each of those fruits is a multitude of seeds. It's an amazing picture. So, Finding a way to honor him through that whole process is a way for us to minister to the Lord. We recognize his workmanship in everything. And boom, we are all of a sudden ministering to the Lord in a very natural circumstance. The Israelites had a great understanding of the continual meeting of their physical need by God. Because without the manna in the wilderness, they would have died. So they had a very physical representation of this spiritual concept. Um, The Jewish people, although, uh, let's say, a strict traditional Jewish person would say that they're still waiting on the Messiah, okay? There is something called a Messianic Jew. The Messianic Jewish community... uh, Holds on to the Jewish traditions and the things laid out in the Bible, but they also have the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah and those things that have been fulfilled. But what the Jewish culture has done a great job of doing is reminders, okay? They have a great concept of how to be reminded. So have you been at the grocery store? Has anybody ever purchased or eaten challah bread, okay? Challah bread, it's usually a twisted loaf of an egg bread, it's delicious. One of my favorite breads of all the bread world, okay? Um, but it, the word challah, it's not about the dough. It's not about traditionally. Maybe in, if we get it at Giant Eagle, it would be. Um, but if you would go to a traditional Jewish bakery or you go to the kosher section of the grocery store and flip over a box of, of matzo or other kind of cracker, it'll say on there, if it's a, if it's a kosher food, it'll say the challah portion has been removed. So this is a beautiful concept. Uh, so I say I am a Jewish person and I am making challah bread. While it's in the dough process, a little bit is snipped off and they take that and either put it in the oven or on the fire or wrap it in foil and put it in the oven until it is burnt to a crisp. Why? What it does is signify, God, you've given me this dough. You've given me this bread and I know you'll meet my needs again. So while I have 100% of it, I don't need 100% because I know you're going to take care of me. I'm going to take a portion off, and I'm going to signify I don't need all this because I know you're going to meet my needs. Does that paint to a picture of what we do in the New Covenant? I know we're, I know we, we're, there's a preacher up here, and he's going to preach about money. I am. Because that is exactly what we do in the New Covenant. We bring him a portion of our dough, okay, portion of our dough, knowing that he gave it all to us in the first place, and that he's going to continue to make it work as we give to him. In Deuteronomy, it says that the Lord gives us the ability to make wealth. So giving to him not only supports the local church, it supports what we do here, but it also shows that we are not dependent on money, we're dependent on him. Now, the Israelites had a heart to give. If you read through Exodus and some of the other books around this section of the Bible, there are times where they've actually been told, please don't bring any more. Please, we, we can't house it. Everybody's needs are met. Everybody has what they have. Like We can't. We can't hold any more of it. That shows you how generous they were. And I wonder if it's part because they really had, while we get to choose, um, if we recognize his handiwork, they had to to see it. Without his manna, they would die. And so they knew that concept. And so out of response to his favor, out of response to his provision, out of response to his goodness, they had an abundancy in their giving. You know, that is why my family, uh, and I know many people in our church and in church families all around the world, they choose to give regularly. You know, I, I, I don't choose to give out of compulsion. I don't give out of an obligation. I give because it's a reminder that God gets my first fruits, okay? You know, Pastor David, it was like he read my notes this morning uh, when we got into this part. You know, if I grew an apple tree loaded with fruit, I could go pick the best fruit, and it's for, I grew this tree, it's amazing. But what God asked for is a first fruit offering, where I take that first, those first prime fruits and actually take it and give it back to him. Um, you know, it's, it's an awesome picture. The old, in the Old Testament, Pastor David talked about it, the Old Testament, it was a 10% tithe, okay? But now we're in a new covenant. In this new agreement, Paul teaches that the tithe is no longer under the law. We aren't under the law anymore. The law has been fulfilled. So, Pastor Adam, are you saying we don't have to tithe? Yes. I'm saying you aren't obligated by law to 10%. Now, I know Pastor Kurt, Pastor David, who oversees our finances, and the elders and deacons, maybe you're a little nervous at this point. Pastor Adam, you said nobody has to tithe. Okay. But Paul knew that in the new covenant, the giving is not by compulsion to fulfill a law. It's supposed to come out of the overflow of your heart. It comes out of seeing God's hand of blessing. It comes out of seeing a need for ministry. It comes out of response to that. It's not an obligation. Maybe God is challenging you to give more away. Maybe he's challenging you to blow 10% out of the water. You know, I, I had to have a little moment of checking, even in my own heart, uh, at times before in giving. Because, you know, I've had moments where, hmm, to give what I feel like you're asking me to give means I might not be able to pay all the things I need to pay. And so we have a problem. Or, and this is even harder to admit, I really want to have a certain figure in my savings. And if I give this big thing that I feel like you're leading me to, it's gonna eat into that number. And I don't know that I'm okay with that. Now, God says to be wise stewards. I'm not telling you not to steward your money well. Uh, I'm saying keep your heart in a position where you're hearing what he's saying and to be obedient with it. And all I can tell you is, Joanna and I choose to remain to be faithful in our giving. We have never gone without. You might say it's a coincidence. I'm not willing to risk it. Even though my brother, one of his favorite phrases, risk it for the biscuit. All right? He trusts us when we steward what he's given us properly. You know, we read it even this this morning around in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we are absolutely talking about finances right now, but we just don't see this principle alone in our finances. If we are not careful to set aside time, energy, to focus on the Lord, we will focus on our portion first and foremost, and God gets the leftovers. Think about it. I mean, the concept is, God asks us, excuse me, making the dough to snip a little bit off and give it to him. I don't need it. The, what ends up happening a lot of the time is we eat the loaf of bread, and if there's a crusty heel left over, we go, oh, yeah, this is yours. Okay? Or we spend all our money on things we want to do and things that are great things, but we haven't taken into the fact that, oh, I was supposed to give to the Lord out of this. Or... I have spent all my time and energy this week doing things for other people and doing things for my home and doing things for my career and doing things for, but I have not spent any time with the Lord. And so he asks us to flip this concept. If we're actually going to be priests, if we're going to be his priesthood, it's a ministry first and foremost unto the Lord. And then he gives us all we need to do the 90%. He gives us what we need. And I'm not just talking about the finances again. It says in scripture, He's a jealous God. He isn't jealous for your money. He isn't jealous for what you can do for Him. He is jealous for your heart. He's jealous for my heart. He doesn't want anything to steal the intimacy that He paid for. He gave His only only Son to die on a cross to get back the intimacy with us. And so often we choose to throw it to the curb because we choose something else over his presence. I'm I'm talking to myself as well. That's a check for every person that hears this word. It is absolutely a choice when we hear the word of God and we walk away from it. The beautiful thing is he's ready to receive us the minute our hearts turn towards him. He's there, okay? Now, if only we had a way to drive home this importance of taking bread and letting it be one with us. If only Jesus gave us a really cool example about breaking bread and being in communion with the Father. Oh, wait, where's it at? Pocket. Let's move into communion. So just hold the cup in your hand. You don't have to peel off wrappers yet. Let's just um, talk for a few moments. Now, you may not be super familiar as to why we take communion. You may just know it as a tradition of the church. Uh, you may just know it as something we do once a month just out of ritual. Traditions can be a very powerful tool to remind us of something, but if we lose track of why we have done them in the first place, the intended purpose of them, they've lost all meaning. You know, if, if you know me at all for any length of time, um, you know, I, I, I love musicals, and my favorite one is Fiddler on the Roof. I've had the privilege of getting to play Tevya a couple times and he has a great line in the opening monologue where he says, uh, you may ask me, how did this tradition start? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. So let's be cautious not to look at our communion in that light today that we're just gonna take this because I told you we're taking communion today. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful, incredibly thankful that I don't have to sacrifice an animal every time I've sinned. Like, it's easy for us to read it in the Bible, but bring it to today. Could you imagine every sin you've ever committed having to take an animal, slit its throat, and burn it on an altar? And just when you think you've done it right, you leave, somebody cuts you off with their wagon, and you do something stupid, and boom, you've sinned again. Now find me another dove, I don't know. goes back to that scripture I read earlier. Jesus has negotiated a much better contract with the Lord. We don't have to partake of the 12 breads in the presence of God, because now we get to enter God's direct presence through the one bread, the Messiah, and it is he who has provided the bread for our life. We observe communion, which is the partaking of consecrated bread to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This is a typology for us this morning. The table of showbread in Israel's worship pointed forward to the future Messiah and his fulfillment of the covenant. So today, let's focus on the fact that God wants to commune with us to be with us, to break bread with us. So if you're prepared in your heart to take communion today, I want to make sure that those in in the room have what they need. If you did not receive one and you would like one, raise your hand. The ushers uh, have some that they would be able to bring up to you. While they're doing that, if you're joining us online, I don't want you to be bound by the thought of love. I don't have any grape juice and I don't have any stale styrofoam to eat. Um, But go get Go get a couple crackers, a piece of bread, some juice, water, anything that represents uh, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, okay? It'll it'll work today, trust me. So in light of everything that we've talked about today, I want you to focus on two facts. The first thing is, God loves you, me. Like think of me, I'm just talking to, to your heart right now even though we're a room full of people and people watching online. God loves you so much that he launched the most elaborate recovery plan to get back the intimate face-to-face relationship with you that he intended from the dawn of creation. And the second fact is, we need his presence to survive. We will starve to our death without him just like the Israelites with their manna. We need you, Lord. So to combat taking this out of ritual or out of tradition, I want us to just take a moment and pause and think about those two things. So you might not have ever done it before, but close yourself off right now and get alone with the Father and recognize the fact that he wants to commune with you, that he loves you with an infinite amount of love. And we're just gonna let... um, We're gonna let Chi play for a little bit and just think about those two things as you hold your communion right now. lover of your presence, I'm a lover of your presence. So if you have one of these cups, we're going to peel the top layer. Okay, and then please hold the bread in your hand. I'm going to say a prayer and then we'll take the bread together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your desire to commune with us. It brings us to a place of humility to recognize how much you crave our attention. Please forgive us, Lord, for ignoring you at times. Help us to see when we have stepped outside of the holy place. Now we take the bread which symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ that was broken and given as an offering for our salvation. We cherish you and we thank you with every fiber of our being. We see this bread not only as a representation of our physical nourishment being met, we also see it as our spiritual nourishment, Father. Thank you for this bread. Amen. Let's take the bread together. The seal on the, the cup, be careful it doesn't splash on you. We're gonna do the same thing, I'm gonna pray and then we'll take it together. Father, we, re- we recognize that without the shedding of the perfect blood of Jesus Christ, we would be lost. We would be lost in having to continue to work and strive and make sacrifices that would never be enough to cleanse us totally. So we thank you, Lord, that you've made a way for us to be seen as sanctified and clean before your eyes. We rest in the completed and finished work that the blood of Jesus paid for. We thank you that every curse is broken. We thank you that you love us so much that you sent Jesus as our atonement to get us back to the place you created us for. And we thank you and accept the blood of Jesus as our righteous covering. Amen. Let's take the cup together. We are the temple and the showbread, the bread of his face, should be in the featured position of our daily walk with God. We also have to remember that all of humanity is starving for bread. They are starving for bread of life. We need to remind ourselves that the presence of God Almighty is such a powerful source, and that thought alone should encourage us to share the gospel with somebody so that they too can come to the gate and enter through Jesus. That they can accept the shedding of Jesus' blood and sacrifice to pay for their sins. That they could be washed clean on a daily basis. And that they, as a priest now to him, get to enter the holy place and commune with him for themselves. We cannot hold that truth to ourselves. We cannot. It's a disservice to the world. Now, if you're listening to this message either in the room or you're joining online and you have never walked through the gate yourself to your destiny with Christ, I encourage you to reach out to us. We would love to partner with you. Uh, You can click the link in the chat section or go to our website. And if you're here in the room, I want you to come down and myself will pray with you or, or some of our pastoral team or the altar team will pray with you afterwards. My concluding thought today is go and bake some bread or at least buy some really great bread and think about how the Lord so desires and craves communion with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being with us today. We thank you for communion. We thank you, uh, Lord, that you Make a way for us to turn around, even if we lose our path, uh, that you're right there with us so we come back to you this morning. Lord, I ask that the words spoken today, that the music shared today, that all of these will be seeds that grow into trees that bear much fruit. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your cup and, and with you and give it to the usher. They have a bucket at the exits. Uh, be blessed today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and go visit centralconnect.org for more information and media.